Welcome to MTVA Unscripted. My name is Lisa Trumbull, and here today with me are my colleagues, Drs. Uh, Stephen Schutzer and John Rodas. Our guest today is AJ Loyacano, the CEO of Capital RX. AJ, welcome. Thank you. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today about yourself and Capital RX. And you know, briefly, I want to disclose to our audience that my organization, Southern New England Healthcare organization has a relationship with Capital RX, but we're going to talk about that later on in our, our discussion today. To set the stage for everyone, for, for you know, patients and for employers and providers that are at risk for healthcare costs in one way, shape, or form, there's always this responsibility to understand what's happening to total cost of care. And one of the frustrating points about uh, looking at the cost of care today is the, the increasing cost of pharmaceuticals as, as part of that, that you know, milieu. It, we're seeing double-digit increases in pharmaceutical costs. The pharmaceutical pricing is as opaque as anything could be, and it's virtually a black box. Nobody seems to understand it, unless you're an expert like AJ. And then we fold in the Consolidated Appropriations Act, where there's a requirement for employers to do rigorous disruption analysis, a TPA review and, you know, elimination of gag clauses, among other responsibilities. And I just want to open up the floor, AJ, and kind of get your, your view of the world, what Capital RX is, a little bit about your background and, and what your strategy is. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me today. Uh, you know, my background is pretty straightforward. I've spent the last, it's hard to believe, 24 years in the pharmaceutical supply chain, uh, I started my career on the plant side, working in pharmaceutical manufacturing, converting old supply chain systems. You know, oftentimes you, the very you know basic tasks that you're doing early in your career would become the building blocks for what you do later in life. And so I spent eight years uh, doing really dry work, converting these old MRP systems to MRP2 to ERP systems such as Oracle and SAP. And I didn't realize that I was gaining a first-rate education in supply chain logistics, drug pricing, and software implementation, things that serve me still to this day. And then I moved over to the opposite end of the supply chain, where I began to understand the inherent flaws in our pharmaceutical supply chain and drug pricing system. And I used to work with large payers at my old organization. So I used to be engaged by large Fortune 500 companies, large health systems, state payers, government entities. And what they all had in common was no one was getting the value they thought out of their pharmacy benefit agreement. I have to be fair, I didn't even know what a PBM was until probably nine years into my career. And I kind of assume the pharmaceutical supply chain operated like any supply chain. There's a manufacturing layer. There's some sort of cost upcharge or markup in a wholesaler layer. And that wholesaler layer would, you know, have a markup and sell to a retail distribution. And what I came to understand very quickly is the last hop in the supply chain, the patient, the payer, this plan sponsor, all the drug prices in the United States disappear. And that's really odd if you think about it. When you come from manufacturing, you spend a day and create a pallet of drugs and it's sitting on the loading dock. Everything has a unit cost. 
we're selling based upon an absolute number against a very specific drug code. And all of a sudden you see a PBM contract for the first time. It's 50 to 100 pages long and there's not a single drug price in it. And I'm a very practical person. And I would ask these really, you know, silly, plain questions like, why don't we have drug prices? And, you know, the quote unquote consulting experts would say, well, you can't receive drug prices, AJ. It's not how it works. It's an average over time in a complex classification system. And I'm like, you do realize everyone else in the supply chain has a price except for us. And I also, I think payers don't understand that they are the most powerful part of the equation, which is you're on the buy side of the equation. So when you control money, Everyone should be bending to your will, but for some reason, the entire industry has been trained to do the opposite, which is bend to the will of the sell side, which is the carriers and the PBMs. And so I struggled with this for eight years. I can't say I, I gave up easy on the procurement and audit side, but I, I had, again, a, a great education in learning how drugs were priced and how these contractual arrangements worked and all of the opacity and failings. And so after eight years, I decided that the only way to fix the problem would be to become the problem in many ways, which is become involved as a pharmacy benefit manager, but, you know, to do it a slightly different way. And before I go into that, let me pause and answer any of your initial questions. No, I think I think the the intro was was uh, fabulous actually because you covered a, a few items that I had for you. But I I am amazed at the way that you explain your experience here because as as someone who's been in healthcare for over thirty years, I you know I look at the pharmacy part of the equation as the biggest Ponzi scheme in healthcare today. And um and and you began to talk a little bit about the pricing differences. And I wonder if you could shed some light for our audience on the difference between average wholesale price and the NADAC, the National Average Drug Acquisition Cost, because that's a that's a, a central to the work that you do at Capital RX in in some fashion, correct? Well, absolutely true. I think one of our central tenants is that we don't want to be in the price fixing or setting business. You know, I think. For me, I was taught one of the main principles of a fair and efficient market is buyers and sellers freely communicating on price. And if you set a price, you're no longer allowing that kind of natural synergy to exist or occur. And so what we wanted to do was to make sure that we're never in that position. So what we decided to use is NADAC, National Average Drug Acquisition Cost. And I always say you have to speak the language of the pharmacies at the end of the day. Like there might be a better pricing system out there, but can I create a contract agreement using that different pricing logic? And the answer is no, it's very difficult. So the reason why NADAC worked is because it's used by CMS for Medicaid reimbursement in like 40 plus states. So it's a language that pharmacies had seen before. In addition, is it speaks to price specificity at a net price level. And so I always want to make this clear. AWP is a starting point of the discussion, and you always talk about AWP with a discount. And I always feel like this is the problem 
is back to these PBM arrangements is they're with words and they'll describe, hey, all of generic drugs have a discount at retail of 90%. You know, let's just use an arbitrary number. What does that even mean? I mean, I find it very hard to believe, and anyone should, that 50,000 unique NDC codes all have the same exact discount off of a price. It makes no sense. And so what I like about NADAC that is better is it speaks to price specificity. So it's in National Drug Code 11-digit sequence, which gives you the name of the manufacturer, the quantity, the package size, the milligram strength. So it's very specific. It doesn't go any lower, I should say, in characteristic or specificity. It tells you exactly what the drug is, and there's a unit cost against it. So I feel like we're starting at a good point, but back to allowing the market to work appropriately is you tell the pharmacies, if you would like to offer a better price, you can. And then the other part of it is you won't be punished with us if you signal a better price. I think in some standard contracting arrangements, I always want to be fair here, what, what, what happens is if someone says, hey, I'm willing to offer an extra 10% off, well, then they're like, great, you've been holding back 10% on me. Right. Now I'm going to hit you. The plan will never see that benefit. The patient will never see that. And the carrier PBM may pick up 10% additional economic incentive for themselves. And so, you know, we want to make it clear we don't make money on spread. We don't have MAC lists. We don't have DIR fees in which we are going to punish the pharmacy. If For those who do not know, I am the son of an independent pharmacist, so I have a soft spot in this discussion. And so I just wanted to create a fair framework. So we chose NADAC, but I, what I like about NADAC as well is it's really representing, representing acquisition cost. And does every pharmacy report into it? No. But I always like to point out is it is vastly superior to AWP and anyone who supports AWP pricing, I don't think they have their client's best interest. And right. so if given a choice, remember, I don't make money on drug spend in our organization. I just wanted to pick a fairer benchmark and allow everybody in the supply chain a right to compete and offer a better price if they so deem it. AJ, hey, I just want to ask about how you were Speaking, I don't want to derail what your thought process, what you said, but you mentioned talking about competing on price, AJ, and I have trained myself over the last 15 years. When I hear price, I immediately go to outcomes and value mm -hmm. rather than price, because especially in healthcare, price has no, no connection with actual cost. It's kind of price. What do you think about that? What do you think about competing on, on the value of the drug? I'm thinking about promote John's company, Vivio, and how they look at the drug's value and how that should align with the price on the market as well. Did you take that into consideration? Absolutely. I mean, I think once you create a business model or framework that Capital RX operates in, you're free of the inherent bias or the conflict of interest. So if you make money on drug spend, naturally you make more the more expensive the drug is, the velocity of the dispense rate, the continuation of therapy, even if someone's not responding to the drug. So, you know, we often stated that when we started Capital RX, we had to go back to the future. So if you went back to the 90s, PBMs did not make money on drugs. They charged a flat administrative fee because that's what their job is to help administrate a benefit plan on behalf of the fiduciary, the ultimate payer. 
And so we chose to use that same model because if you're being charged a flat rate on a PM, PM or per script basis, I don't care if it's a $50,000 drug or a $15 drug, we receive the same incentive to administrate the plan. And so a big part of what we do is, yes, we start with price because price does matter as a starting point, but you're hitting on the right thing. So the next stage of savings is based upon clinical alignment. You know, using FDA approved guidelines, we do work with some of our payers that have custom formulary or their own kind of prior authorization workflow logic. And our job as the administrator is to help empower them for that mission. You know, not every payer has the same goal. And I use this example. I might have a municipality with a fixed budget or a union with limited amounts of resources. And really cost is a big part of it as a starting point. I might have other payers that are Fortune 500 companies and they have very rich benefits and they want to focus more on the outcome side or really focus on improving adherence. But you have to be sensitive to the ultimate goal and financial structure or budget of each of your customers. And so as a starting point, we start with price. We then move to clinical workflow. So prior authorization. We have a very, very low prior authorization approval rate and a very, very low continuation of therapy because I like data. I've just always been a math-driven person. And if you were to go through the ICER database or FDA database and look at efficacy on drugs, it's very rare to find efficacy rates above 65%. So why would anyone's continuation of therapy with a large population ever be above that number. Well, CMOs are always pretty good, AJ, actually. <laughs> well, I I agree. And I think for us, you know, our numbers continually are in the 60s, which is about where efficacy is. And so one of the things you're going to see is I've been a patient, certainly on medication. I want my physician or nurse practitioner who's taking care of me to give me the appropriate information. If I'm not responding to the medication, well, let's get me off of it because, you know, to be fair, many medications have side effects, some long-term, so move us off of it. And then the third area that I think you know, Steve's you know, discussing is I believe in precision medicine. And this mm -hmm. takes a little bit more work from the payer. It's not to say that we're not willing to do it. I do it with one or two accounts. And what precision medicine is, is you're basically removing this antiquated notion of a one-size-fits-all formulary. I often make this example. My sister and I are very similar genetically, but we respond to drugs totally differently and have different needs. So why would everyone in the United States be on the same formulary? That, that makes no sense. And it's, it's really an artifact of pay-to-play economics to maximize rebate incentives and you know, market access, patient access, however you want to you know, frame that. So I believe the world should move to precision medicine and layering, obviously, the discrete kind of care for each patient, as well as layering in things like pharmacogenomics and a way to think about ahead of time, if we have access to the, the lab work or information, how someone may respond to medication. And then obviously working with that patient on a treatment plan. And one of the things that's very unique about our organization is one, we support that philosophy. And I always want to make it clear, not all of my payers are the same. Some people don't like that model, which is fine. But the other thing is we built a system 
Our system is Judy. Judy's short for adjudication, and she's the brains of our organization. But one of the unique things that Judy does is Judy terminates not at the group level for administration, but at the patient level. So I can't create a formulary for a member or a rule set of care. I can create special instructions and prior authorization down to the patient level, therapy level, even to the physician level. You know, for some physicians, we have what I call easy pass, where it has been deemed by my payer client that they are the foremost expert in their field or area of expertise, and no one should question them in the prior authorization workflow. And we're fine with that again. Remember, I serve at the privilege and the pleasure of the payer. That's great. You know, I think you, you go, go ahead, John. You know, I was going to say, I'm going to pivot. And AJ, first of all, I wish Clay Christian were alive to see what you've done because he'd be proud of you. And, you, you know, the disruption you're bringing into a most convoluted market, as, as Lisa was alluding to, that I think anybody could even imagine. Um, but let me go back to kind of more current day real world. Well, I appreciate the future look. From a pricing point of view, you alluded to free markets, and you also alluded to the fact it's not really a good free market in healthcare. And certainly, I know as a former hospital president, we're not even close to that. There's not a lot of transparency. One of the biggest payers of of drugs is Medicare, is the federal government. And of course, as you know, up until recently, they couldn't negotiate drug prices. So I just wonder, could you weigh in on your feelings on that and what the future you think holds there? Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, uh, I refer to a report that was created by the Congressional Budget Office, CBO, in February of 2021, if I get my years correctly. And what was in that report was hiding in plain sight was a basket of goods assessment of branded drugs for the major kind of payers in the federal government and lines of business. So it was like, DOD, it was uh, the VA, it was Medicare, Medicaid, and 340B. And the worst pricing across the board was Medicare, but it's the largest pair. Now, mm-hmm. it should take you all of three seconds to be like, why is the largest payer receiving the worst prices? And, you know, I think the Inflation Reduction Act IRA addressed this and said, well, enough's enough. Like, I'm reading the same data point AJ is from the same CBO report. So why don't we do something about this? Now, I always want to preface this. Change is difficult for any organization. I can only imagine how difficult it is for the federal government. (laughs) And so I think they're doing the best they can with a very difficult abstract model, which is things impact one another in government schedules, things impact each other globally. So if you have vendors that have been relying upon an offset of cost through a more generous reimbursement rate on drugs, then how do they make up for it? And I think people have seen that report in different forms saying, well, this is going to cost us money. And I'm just like, well, it's really cutting into the profitability of those vendors that service those lines of business if you hold them to that standard. You know, so I think a lot of this is going to play out over time. But my first thought is long overdue, and I applaud them for doing it. Yeah, agree. You know, while we're talking about pricing and models, you know, we have, you know, Mark Cuban and Amazon are out there talking about, you know, the impact they're going to have on on pharmacy spend and how they can make things much better. And uh, I'm curious as to your opinion about that and how your model compares to what they're doing. 
Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, they're pharmacies. You know, yeah. our job is to be an administrator. And I always try and point this out. I mean, what is the real job of a PBM before it became a little bit distorted with fulfillment channel and GPO accesses? We're in charge of the hundreds of administrative tasks. So eligibility, plan design, printing cards, clinical workflows, managing formularies, network management, reimbursement billing. It goes on and on and on but they're very important. And even with government lines of business, you you add on additional, be it star ratings to PDE workflows to uh, CMS audit and reconciliation. You know, there's hundreds and hundreds of tasks and that's what we should be focusing on. But we're agnostic as an unbiased administrator. So if a payer says, I really want this person in our network, I'm completely fine with that. I always point this out. We make no money on drug spend, you know, from rebates to network to mail specialty. So if someone says, hey, I'd like to invite Amazon in, or I'd like to invite this big box store in, or even a local pharmacy. I have local pharmacy chains supporting some mail order functions for some of my customers. I always go back to this. My job is to give you the economic impact. Are their prices good? You know, I also like to point out how many drugs are they impacting? And then there's some fine print. And I always want everyone to be careful with this because if someone asked me the other day to describe healthcare, and I had a very cynical response, and I'm going to use it now, is healthcare in the United States is an arbitrage on patient ignorance. True. And so when people show up with savings, I always like to say I'm starting out from a very neutral position. I don't make any more or less, whomever you choose, but I would like to educate you because I've been around the block. And so I read some of these agreements and they'll be like, hey, you could put your drugs through us. And oh, by the way, I keep rebates. Wait, whoa, 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 time out. I'm like, what business are you in now? Are you a pharmacy that's dispensing drugs? But when did you get into the world of being a GPO or rebate aggregator? And what gives you the right to keep the payment that should be going? If you, I mean, if you have a natural dispensing price, that's a low price point that my payer client appreciates, we can discuss that. But don't start submitting rebates or redirecting things to benefit you in a financial arrangement that we don't have visibility to we can't audit and you've literally buried in this agreement on page 78 that doesn't seem like the right thing so i don't want to portray everyone as doing this but i've gone through a few arrangements and there's some zingers in there so i always say just be careful you know a lot of people promise a lot of things and what i say is do the analytics Make sure whoever's doing the analytics is not being compensated in any way. This is another issue I have with the country is a lot of people are, quote unquote, consultants, but get paid by these entities. And that's the definition of a conflict of interest or they get paid more money. I mean, I was in a bid last month for a plan and I was shocked to discover that the winning PBM got paid you know, was paying more to this consultant. And I'm like, did we disclose that anywhere? And it wasn't. And now this is becoming a bit of a sticking point. But again, it's it's very convoluted. My position is I'm neutral. I help 
all of my payers do the detailed analytics to see what that means. And the other part of this, I always want to make this very clear, is the patient experience. You know, you have to be careful when you have lots of endpoints. So one, are they digitally connected? Yes. Operationally, do they have service levels that support the experience of that patient? So sometimes when you move to a smaller facility that may be offering a better price point, you have to be careful. Do they have inventory? Do they have inventory control? If someone doesn't receive the drug, do they understand they are on the hook for that inventory cost? Right. You know, and let's just say you're shipping a $50,000 drug and it has, you know, 24 to 48 hours, you know, let's say 48 hours to 72 hours with dry ice, you know, before you have some real concerns about the integrity of the medication. Well, we need to address that up front and create the standards that perhaps a larger distribution point has already thought through. And so I'm saying everything is on the table, but I always want everyone to know the pros and cons going into these arrangements. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, AJ. Having um, utilized for my organization in particular, we applied the um, Consolidated Appropriations Act to the, you know, to our health plan. And I, I would say we spent the most time on the pharmacy benefit arrangement. And, you know, after looking at, like you said, somewhere around 100 pages of uh, documentation and a contract around the PBM relationship, the, 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 the chain of pricing and the cuts that everybody gets along the way is it was really eye-opening uh, to us. And, you know, for, for those listening uh, to us today, we analyzed the CAPRX program against um, you know, our existing PBM relationship and found, you know, that, you know, we're not a huge company. We would save some money on our pharmacy spend. And right now we're tracking at, you know, 19, you know, over $19 PM, PM of savings in our first year. And wow. to me, that is just astounding by switching a PBM and understanding all the cuts that people get along the way, you know, from the broker you know, to the handlers, to, you know, other people that get like a per script payment. It just, it was astounding. And, you know, I wonder what your thoughts are about whether the CAA will help expose this um, more to employers nationally and whether that will create a, you know, a transition to other, you know, entities or solutions like yourself. What's, what's your kind of take of the relative impact of CAA on this? Yeah, I often joke I should have tattooed on my arm Section 408B2B of ERISA, which is what the Consolidated Appropriations Act amended, which is disclosures around any type of healthcare service payment arrangement, et cetera. One of the things I do want to point out is the Department of Labor kind of governs this directly, indirectly. And if you think about ERISA, this document, I think from 1974, it contemplates two really big areas of the United States from, you know, kind of an industry perspective. One is kind of pension 401k. And the other one is this small thing called healthcare for self-insured entities. And so if you look at the Department of Labor, this is a personal opinion. I think they did a very good job at the turn of the century of really enforcing some 
bad practices around compensation of brokers and consultants that were sponsoring 401k plans. So the classic example is you got a 401k plan that has a blended rate of return of 6%, 5%, but the administrative fees are 7 to 9%. You know, it's just a net negative. And so I think part of this was to create a framework of reporting and then have people enforce it. And now here we are all these years later, you're now seeing entities in the government turn their attention to healthcare, and it's going to take a little bit of time. So first thing, I'm highly supportive of it, but I think you would agree possibly with your travels. There are some brokers and consultants that still don't even recognize it. There are some big payers that don't even know this responsibility exists. And I say responsibility because as the fiduciary under ERISA, it is their responsibility to enforce this. So if something negative were to happen, you know, negative being a patient were to report I'm being treated unfairly and they haven't been doing their disclosures or reporting or asking for the appropriate information, because it's not just, are they receiving the information? If you read it, and my understanding of it is that it has to be appropriate and fair. And so you have to do a little bit of research as to, you know, people have asked me, what is appropriate or fair for compensation? And, you know, that conversation has a lot of different details to it. But net net, uh, I always want to say I'm super supportive of it. It's going to take some time. And I think some of that time is just going to have more people being involved and some people made an example of. Yeah, and I think you're seeing a lot of that now litigation starting to come to the fore, which will probably change some of those behavior. AJ, I have a question related to specialty drugs. And you alluded to this, you know, the hypothetical high cost drug that's $40,000 that it's on ice for, you know, 48 hours and then it's no good. If I understand from my friend Jeff Hogan, when you look at most plans, a lot of the drug spend is in a handful or maybe two handfuls of drugs. And as an old hospital guy, I know when we looked at our acquisition costs, we had a similar thing for a handful of drugs were very high cost. Now, we had the privilege of, of buying drugs at 340B pricing, which you may have to explain a little bit to the listeners. But honestly, we didn't. That of course, that plan was supposedly intended so hospitals could deliver high cost drugs to people who couldn't afford it. But the truth is, we didn't adjudicate it that way. We bought the drugs at low price and then sold it kind of retail to folks who could pay it. So we, a lot of hospitals, you know, kind of make out on it. But could you just allude to the first start with just the, the high cost drugs um, uh, yeah. off many of whom are infused? And uh, when you look at total sure. cost of care, what your thoughts on that are? Well, I mean, it's, you know, it, you said, you know, two hands, it's 2% really represents 50% of the drug spend. So when you want to spend time with patients, statistically, you should look at the 2% because they are going to have the biggest cost impact. Now, obviously, you want to adjudicate and make sure you've got good clinical rule sets broadly across your entire population. But when you talk about human intervention, programmatic flagging for intervention, it's the 2%. And And this starts to go to at the start of it. So you're a new start. Is this appropriate? at this point in the patient journey. Now we're saying, you know, I always want to make this clear is we always want to do what's right for the physician and their patient, but our job is to be a check on behalf of the fiduciary that's sponsoring the plan. You know, and so 
I always say we're inserted in here for a reason. And I think the first stop in that is you have a new patient start. Is it appropriate? If it is, great. But then there's a second responsibility that people forget. Whatever your check-in period is, depending upon that therapy or class of drugs, might be three months, might be six months, you know, depending upon what it is, could be a year. Are they responding to that medication? And if they are not responding, what do we do? And some people completely forget about that in their equation because they're like, hey, expensive drug, yes. Let's just make sure they have medication possession ratios of 120%, you know, and just keep pushing the drug. And, and so I, I, going back to this, you know, I always say starting point, fair price, but with it clinically, fair assessment, and then a continuing responsibility of a check-in and making sure that the patient is still responding to the medication. Yeah, AJ, that's a that's a good segue. You had talked previously about precision medicine, which gets to the point of efficacy. How does CapRx help providers, employers, and patients understand the efficacy of the drugs that they're administering or taking? Yeah, so we start with, you know, a formulary that is not wasteful. You know, I just want to start. There are some drugs, I don't want to name any, you know, on this that I would cringe at the name and saying that this drug doesn't make sense. It's hot. It's incredibly expensive, you know, for something that could be received over the counter or a lower cost treatment, even within its therapeutic category. And so what we start with is we try and remove as many wasteful drugs as possible at the start. Some things you may not be able to remove because it just doesn't have presently an alternative that, you know, might be a direct equivalent or fair or however someone wants to look at that. But that's the first line of defense is when you start to think about efficacy, let's get rid of wasteful things and typically high cost things that may do the same exact thing for what we call a low cost substitute or a lower cost alternative. We also have programmatically on our platform, we get transfers. So we bring on a new customer so the first thing we're going to do is obviously make sure people have their medication and are renewing. The second thing we're going to do is start going through and seeing at the 2% category, that's a manual intervention because it's going to require engaging with the physician to make sure this is the appropriate medication at the right checking time, but also kind of the long tail that even you can have generics in the same category and something could be fractional in cost, like one-tenth, one-eighth the cost of the generic they're on. And so these are called low cost alternative logic. What happens is we, if the client likes this, we push this to the member so they can see, hey, I have another option. We can't change it. I always want to make this clear. We're not the physician. And we say, if you would like to do this, we can either initiate the conversation ourselves, or you could just reach out to your physician. And we see really good uptake on that because if people have an opportunity to save money, especially people that have may have coinsurance or deductible programs, it's meaningful money sometimes for these folks. And so I think that's another layer in this discussion. But for our most advanced customers, and, and I use this word, you know, phrase like most advanced because it does require work and it does require a level of sophistication the average employer does not have available to them. They also don't have the understanding and it has to be a partnership and so I think this is what we always want to focus on, which is then we can construct, be it custom formularies, or start to layer in precision medicine, not broadly over 140,000 NDC codes, but 
let's look at the therapeutic categories for this particular payer that are your top three cost categories. And let's start studying those and putting together a program for it. I always want to make this clear. Again, our job is to partner with our payer and listen to them and help empower them to the level that they can from resource as well as their level of knowledge. Yeah, AJ, I want to first congratulate you on your award this year. I noticed that you are Entrepreneur of the Year Award from Ernst & Young, so congratulations. And Thank you. I, I, um, I've been sort of following the, your trajectory over the last couple of three years, and I like social change. I like your mission. I like that you're a B Corp. I mean, that shows that you're structurally aligned with your mission. My question, though, is as an orthopedic surgeon, AJ, I didn't know what a PBM was six years ago until I met Paul Grady and Jeff Hogan, and I got a migraine. I said, you got to be kidding me. (laughs) But the only thing I can reflect on that is as an orthopedic, as an arthroplasty surgeon, we buy our implants, and John Rodas knows this, from basically four manufacturers. So it's a little similar thing, but it's on the manufacturer side. So a friend of mine, like this David and Goliath, wanted to take on the orthopedic device industry and go direct to the to them and, and purchase directly. Because the cost of goods to make a hip replacement AJ is about 800 bucks and they're sold for five or 6,000. So where's all that going? That's beyond reasonable margin. So anyway, he, he went to the major four companies and they basically gave him the middle finger and said, we're not interested in you. And so he bought his own device company, small one, and we tried to build it. But the headwinds were such, the legal issues, the politics, going back 10 years ago, had to unwind it and fold it. So where I'm going with this is you're you're disrupting, you're taking on four of the Fortune 15 companies, taking them head on. How are you being received by the people that are manufacturing the products? You know, are you, this is a great idea. Are they welcoming you or are you getting, you know, we're not interested? We did a very famous study with McKinsey. Um, you know, reputable consulting firm right when we started our organization, maybe two years in. And my board thought it was a little bit dubious of me spending the money at the time. And some of my colleagues did, but I said, I need to settle this argument once and for all, because I don't want to waste our time trying to engage with a partner that has no interest. And really what we were trying to say is if I'm not making money on drugs, You can give me 90, 95% of the value of what you're giving the bigger people, but your patients are going to benefit more. I'm going to do complete pass-through. We'll have single ledger reconciliation. I'll give you every audit right in the world. We'll give you real-time data feeds, everything you dream of in the manufacturing world. And McKinsey took this message to 12 different manufacturers or so and did a study with us. And what was fascinating is at any time, let's just say the average manufacturer has 12 really good drugs and you have 12 brand managers that manage these drugs. At any one time, a little over half believe they are winning in the current arrangement with traditional PBMs. And what would happen is if someone was winning one year, they might lose another year. But there were enough people that thought they were winning that they didn't want to change the program. And so I suddenly realized we had no chance of engaging with these people. It would be a waste of our resource. So whatever amount I spent on this consulting project, I could just hold up this you know, study for the rest of my life and say, they just weren't ready. And maybe things have changed a little bit. I don't think that much. But what I will say has happened is we have 
a somewhat efficient secondary market of GPO economics. So if you wanted to go out and price out four different rebate aggregation groups, you can. If you wanted to lease a retail network and price that out with three, four different partners, you can. If you want to price out your specialty or even a particular therapeutic category carve out, you can. And what I always go back to is you just need a partner that's your administrator, you know, capital RX in this case, that's willing to do that. So you're not going to injure us and take money away from us if you decide I'm going to use C, F, and G as my vendors versus A, B, and L. You know, it really doesn't matter to us. And so I, I think what I want everyone to remember here is that there is a fairly efficient market that didn't exist 10 years ago. 10 years ago, if you were to speak to, I have a friend who was like president level at one of these very large companies, and he would say 10 years ago, I would never have given anyone access to my rebates or my retail network, but now they're all too willing to give you a price and compete. And so what I always try and focus on is what you need to do first is remove yourself from the matrix. And this illusion of the claims data that you receive that you think is sacrosanct or, or real is an illusion. I mean, anyone can send you a spreadsheet. And, and so I think what you need to do is to first get an administrative platform where you have visibility to everything. It's a single ledger. You can see our records. You can see all the purchasing. There's no difference in price. All of our customers get the same price. There's no preferential treatment. I always want to say administrative fee may be a little bit higher for a smaller group or a little bit lower if you're a very large group, but your drug prices and your rebates, everything's the same and obviously predicated on formulary decisions. So all things being equal, again, everyone should get the same thing. But my point here is that it's a hyper-efficient market, but you need to start with someone who's willing to do it, has alignment, and is going to show you reality. And the example I give is our own organization, that when we moved from a third-party processor platform and started to process our own claims, magically, we found 15% value. And I'm like, well, where did that come from? And it was suddenly we realized is we were the centralized hub of all information, all billing, all ancillary fees, all secondary charges, primary charges, drug pricing, reimbursement, everything. And so giving that to payers, I think, is critical. And then to kind of an overlaying theme here, layering in this kind of agnostic purchasing approach, layering in, if you can do it, levels of precision medicine or focusing on efficacy and outcomes. But it begins with the platform. I can't stress this enough. I saw it ourselves as a PBM. I was like, whoa, like nothing has changed except for the platform, you know? And so that's what I try and help people understand as well. Get out of the matrix or the illusion and start to see your raw claim information, pricing information, reimbursement workflows. AJ, that is a perfect ending to this this right. discussion. But I think, you know, you, the last points you made are the essence of what we talk about in moving to value alliance, and particularly when we talk to employers. It all, and you've shown this firsthand with your own company. It starts with your data. Get your data. See where you're spending the money, like you do for every other part of your business, and look under the hood, and you'll be shocked. And guess what? You could save a lot of money because there's a lot of variability in cost.
there's a lot of variability in quality and start to shop like any educated consumer. And well said. You know, maybe AJ and CapRx progress as a bellwether for the rest of what we're doing in healthcare. It's going to be very interesting to follow. So thank you very much, AJ, for your leadership. Thank you, AJ, for joining us today and taking the time. Well, thank you, Lisa. Thank you, John. Thank you, Steve. It was a pleasure being here. We appreciate your time. We know it's valuable. And to the MTVA listeners, stay tuned for more unscripted episodes.